in 2005 when we started, nobody, nobody believed in, in our story. And um, there were different projects trying to do a similar thing. Uh, you know, the open, open, let's say open, but um, embedded electronics for education is an emergent phenomenon that starts to show up in the mid 2000s. And uh, when we showed up, we realized that people were open sourcing the IDE, but not the bootloader, or they were open sourcing the, the hardware design, but not the software. You know, there were all these different models. And we realized the really radical thing was to make the whole stack open source and then uh, try to charge for services, which is very similar to what uh, software does in the free software movement. And we went for that and it turned out to be working for a while pretty well. But as we grew and grew, we realized that then competition starts to show up and then um, you need to compete in other terms. And we decided to compete in quality. You know, we decided to give people high quality products and high quality software and high quality content, uh, trying to keep the price instead of instead of like putting down the prices and trying to compete on price, which is what other people do. And we're proving uh, that it works, which is a very interesting situation because we keep on doing open source things, but high quality things. And, and that's uh, basically competing in an entirely different, it's an entirely different proposition in terms of competition. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. Most of you might not have known this, but in college, I studied mechanical engineering. I loved it, building things with my hands. And my favorite class, hands down, was our robotics class where we built robots to compete with other students. It was incredible fun being able to take something and create a tangible working problem solver. And that's exactly what we're doing today. We, today, we've got David Quartielas on the program. David is the co-founder of the Arduino Project. Yes, the Arduino Project, the largest or one of the largest DIY projects in the world. They're an open source hardware platform that allow individuals and creators everywhere to create incredible products and projects. His work has been incredibly important for startups in terms of making hardware leaner, more efficient, and cheaper to get started. David's work spans the fields of programming, education, research, and product development. And since the late 90s, he's been developing robotic and mobile and net-based interactive art installations and open source tools for live performances to get people and kids especially excited about technology learning and what they can do with it. This was a really fun interview because of what Arduino has enabled for the world. It's enabled the open source ability for all of us to become creators, innovators, and that really opens up things, which is exactly what we're going to jump into in this interview and why it's so important. Today, we're going to discuss how open source is affecting education and improving lives worldwide, why open source software is actually different than open source hardware and how to handle it. What makes hardware so hard? How we can recreate the education system for the modern era? The reason ed tech startups so often fail? And the reason why cities make more sense than nation states when it comes to governance? And now, before we jump to the episode, this is the part of the program where if you were listening to a conventional podcast, you'd hear two, three, four, five minutes of advertisements. I'd tell you about this incredible mattress I'm sleeping on, this awesome new set of pills I bought, or this funny company that was shipping me boxes in the mail of food that was prepackaged for me to make for my family and make it so easy. And you know what? We both know that you don't want to hear these ads. And what we're trying to do with Fringe FM is to create a place where we can have the world's smartest, most influential and transformative folks on so we can have transparent, open conversations, the kinds that you don't get other places. We can dive into the difficult 
questions of where we're headed as a society. What do we do with ethical problems, especially the ones that aren't getting talked about enough? If you believe in the work we're doing, please consider supporting us. We're independent media. We try to bring you the best, most transparent information out there to help us build better futures together. We think that it's incredibly important to do this and to not be beholden to advertisers or other business models that misalign us with our listeners. If you go to patreon.com slash fringe FM, you can support us there. If you support us for a level of at least $5 per month or more, you'll unlock bonus weekly episodes. If you like fringe FM, it's a great way to get more. And any amount that you're able to support us with is something. It's something important. If it's a dollar, if it's a hundred dollars, if it's a thousand dollars, whatever you feel compelled to do, whatever you think that French FM is worth for you, be incredibly valuable. If we're worth a cup of coffee per month for you with all of the the content we're putting out, hopefully you're loving and enjoying it because you're still listening to this, then please consider supporting us. Fringe.fm slash Patreon. And if you don't have the, if you don't have the time or inclination or it's just too expensive for you, consider sharing us with friends, family. Word of mouth is an incredible way to help us grow and growing is what we're focused on doing right now. We've figured out that we need to get to around 50,000 listens per episode to make this sustainable. And for us to continue doing this, we have to reach that sustainability mark. So if you're willing to share this with friends or family, tweet about it, post on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, etc. All of those would be super helpful for us in making French FM sustainable. But now that's enough ado. Without further ado, I give you Arduino co-founder, David Quartieres. I work from Starbucks and drink a ton of coffee and love saving money. That's why I love the Cash App, the debit card from Square with boosts that save me a dollar at coffee shops nationwide every time. No strings attached, no hidden fees. Seriously. People don't believe it until they try it. Then my mom tried it. She loved it. And you can get $5 free to fuel your caffeine addiction and save a dollar on every cup of coffee every time by going to disruptors.fm slash cash and signing up. I love the Cash App and coffee. Seriously. Disruptors.fm slash cash to support us, support your fix, and save money on coffee. And now let's get on with the program. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. So Arduino, you've built one of, if not the most successful open source projects to date, at least especially open source hardware. And yet you're still studying, working at university and just absolutely busy. Tell me a little bit about your background and the open source movement. So basically, I I started engineering in the first place. And then I I work, I work as an engineer for a couple of years. And then I got the opportunity of becoming a university teacher at Malmo University. And uh, I was 25 years old and young and inexperienced. And I thought this sounds awesome. Three months vacation. So I moved to Sweden. (laughs) And uh, yeah, what I thought it was three months vacation ended up with, oh, when you have vacation, you should think about, you know, doing research. And in one of those research residencies, I ended up meeting my partners, Massimo, Tom and Dave, and ended up co-founding the Arduino platform. And I guess I was instrumental. I was instrumental in, in building it open source because I was very uh, influenced by previous experiences in projects where uh, our projects failed because we failed at finding a sustainable way to to keep the thing running. Um, but I also learned very early on that if you wanted to have something that was working fine, you need to have your own source of money to maintain yourself. So I decided to never quit academia. Also because I, I'm the first person in my family actually getting a PhD, uh, which I got just recently. And um, so I really wanted to continue to be a student. And, and I, it allowed me to also keep it real, you know, because if I'm at the university and I interact with other students and with researchers and so on, I know exactly what is needed in terms of technology to, to keep on doing good stuff. And that is what I bring back to Arduino on a day-to-day basis, uh, where we design technologies for education and the 4.0 industry. Uh, I bring this experience of being on the field all the time. And you got to be on the field. 
field all the time. I want to dive into the education side in a little bit, but first, open source. How do you make that economically viable? There's Wikipedia and they take <laughs> donations. There's Linux and Linux does what Linux does, but it's incredibly challenging and yet open source seems to be the future. Yeah. Well, let's be honest. I mean, for the first five years, we didn't make a dime. And then uh, <laughs> when we started to like get very, very busy, we, st we realized that we needed some money to hire people to help us out. You know, so the next, the following five years, we spend most of the money we're getting paying other people and not paying ourselves. And only the last couple of years, Massimo and I decided to put a significant amount of time in making it part of our jobs. Tom and Dave decided to to uh, keep their role as advisors and so on. So, so when it comes to when it comes to make open source, I guess I guess you have to make sacrifices uh, before it becomes successful. I mean, you, you mentioned Linux, for example. And you know, Linux right now is is uh, eighty five percent supported by big corporations, the, the Linux project itself. But in the beginning, it was a lot of volunteer work being put into it. Right now, those volunteers are professional programmers being paid by Intel, Microsoft, I and mean, you say it, you know? and they're contributing to this body of work because it's meaningful for all of these companies. And and for us. Because we make hardware, uh, among other things, it's a bit different because um, we need to maintain our own IP and the, the level of engagement we get is slightly different. Also, it's, it's hard to get to collaborate with people because at the end of the day, you need to make an economic decision on do I put this chip here or not? You know, which is, it's very different from accepting a pull request. <laughs> and uh, the way we, we did it is having a mixed model. We have a mixed model, not in licensing, but in business where we sell hardware, but we give the license to the design for free. We create content, but we sell it as education. You know, we, we've had to figure out different vehicles for making it happen. Because to be completely honest, donations don't pay even half a developer a month at this point in our project. So why did you decide to go the open source route? Why not play the devil's advocate business style? Well, in 2005, when we started, nobody, nobody believed in, in our story. And um, there were different projects trying to do a similar thing. Uh, you know, the open, oh, let's say open, but um, embedded electronics for education is an emergent phenomenon that starts to show up in the mid 2000s. And uh, when we showed up, we realized that people were open sourcing the IDE, but not the bootloader, or they were open sourcing the, the hardware design, but not the software. You know, there were all these different models. And we realized the really radical thing was to make the whole stack open source and then uh, try to charge for services, which is very similar to what uh, software does in the free software movement. And we went for that and it turned out to be working for a while pretty well. But as we grew and grew, we realized that then competition starts to show up and then uh, you need to compete in other terms. And we decided to compete in quality. You know, we decided to give people high quality products and high quality software and high quality content, uh, trying to keep the price instead of instead of like putting down the prices and trying to compete on price, which is what other people do. And we're proving uh, that it works, which is a very interesting situation because we keep on doing open source things, but high quality things. And, and that's uh, basically competing in an entirely different, it's an entirely different proposition in terms of competition. And the quality is much harder to have on open source hardware than it is for open source software. Hardware is so much harder. Yeah, people actually tend to compromise things like, I don't know, the backlight on the circuit or the paint or, you know, you, you will figure out amazing things. I mean, you, you see it when, when you buy or when you look at clone Arduino uh, boards, you realize where people are compromising. And, and we, we, we basically start, we started a couple of years ago to try to offer more and more services. For example, now we offer real support with a support team with several people working on it. You know, that's a full-time job, answering support tickets. And nobody pays for it. You know, well, well, when you buy a board, then you pay for the support. But then we take support tickets from anybody that emails to support at Arduino.cc. And this means that many times we discover people are asking for support because they bought a, a counterfeit board. <laughs> and uh, 
But still, you know, for every counterfeit ticket, we get 10 legit, legit tickets. And sometimes people know they bought counterfeit, so they, they don't even bother using the support uh, email address. So it's, it is very interesting, and I think it's very relevant as well, because we're proving that alternative, model, alternative models are possible and, and they actually work. Um, of course, there's also this thing that is really hard to start today, you know, because we have 13 years of experience. We've been there for a long time building a brand and just show, showing up with no money like we did, because the total investment on our end is about 6,000 euros. In the, yeah. in the beginning, you know, because it was very organic, you know, everything that was coming in was being sold again and the money was coming in and then we spent the money buying more stuff and selling more stuff, you know, because we had our jobs and we kept our jobs and to, to the day where we are still teaching at universities and, and keep our jobs part time so we can get the project rolling. The difference is that right now we have a CEO and we have 80 employees and we have three offices, and, you know. So that's that's the difference. So it, it works. It's a, it's a matter of being patient. And actually, I always say this, but it's a matter of not following the two years startup uh, cycle. You know, the two year startup cycle will kill any kind of project that tries to, for example, play into the education market, which needs four or five years to, to start being profitable. I think a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with Arduino, but if not, can you briefly talk about what Arduino is and then we'll jump into education DIY in a bit more. Okay. Yeah, so Arduino started as a, as a first a circuit board that was trying to help uh, designers and artists to create uh, fully working prototypes with electronics, digital electronics, so they could build their own interfaces to computers. Let's say you wanted to make an art installation that was triggering video when the temperature was changing in the room. You needed to add an extra temperature sensor that computers didn't have access to, and then you had to run your video loops or whatever. Or you were a designer that was trying to prototype a new device, and you needed this hardware to try things out. So we thought that it was a bit undemocratic and unfair that that these people uh, didn't get access to the right or the proper prototyping tools. So it, the, the barrier was artificially high to enter into start using these tools. So so we decided to create a hardware tool that would allow people to start prototyping very quickly. What happened is, is that in order to create this hardware prototyping tool, we needed to make a software environment to program this hardware because it's a digital hardware that's a microcontroller. And then we needed to create content so people could learn about it. So we ended up making a full platform with you know, a forum and a blog and a lot of stuff where people can get access to a lot of content and, and can collaborate in building projects and so on. So it grew from, from a small, you know, five times seven centimeters blue open hardware electronic circuit to 580,000 registered developers on our forum and 26 million uh, unique visitors a year. So it's, uh, it's, it's been, it's been right. <laughs> Why do you think so, it's taken off so much? Well, I think first, first thing is was that the mouth to mouth. You know, we spent zero dollars in marketing in the first 11 years of the project. We, we couldn't afford it basically. And by letting, giving people authorship, but you know, by making things open source, everybody becomes a bit of an owner of this thing. And then people feel a lot more committed because they say, yeah, this is a bit mine. And I, I added this thing. I added this library or I made this add on board to it or I made this project using this and these technologies. And you know, three months ago, I didn't know anything about programming, you know, and suddenly these people started to talk to other people and other people and you know we have beautiful stories for for example at ITP the school of the of the arts from New York University where Tom one of the partners and founders works they put down a wall because uh, and they made the lab bigger because they have this this lab behind a wall where they had four computers with a software license to to program microcontrollers the moment all of the students started to use Arduino, they didn't need to use those computers because they could use their own computers to program. So they basically could put down that wall and gain more square meters for an open lab. 
So that's just one example of the many stories that, that came out. You know, students saying teachers, why don't we use this tool instead of whatever we're having? Because then everybody can have it. You know, students in underprivileged areas that would get access to technology through derivative boards because maybe they couldn't afford ours, but they could afford somebody else's. And in that way, they could get access to, you know, better education and eventually make their own jobs later on. So uh, it took off to the mouth to mouth, basically. And um, uh, nowadays we play in a different league, I have to say. We have been collaborating with uh, all of the big companies, you know, we've been collaborating with Microsoft, Intel, Samsung, more or less every every company that makes a, a proof of concept microcontroller board, they give it the shape of the original Arduino boards. You know, just recently, uh, Sony launched this new platform for uh, prototyping sound-based applications, and it's shaped like the original Arduino board, for example. So, um, so it became a de facto standard uh, for people to to prototype and and build things, and that that makes it very interesting and appealing because then all people see it, and then they also get engaged and they also want to use it. Yeah, it brought the cost down an order of magnitude, at least for startups. Hardware was always hard and expensive, but now you can prototype much faster with Arduino and other open source type technologies yeah and you know i think that's actually a repeated a repetition of the story you know the story the history of uh, commodore 64 no oh there is there is a there's a book called i think it's called uh or the edge i think it's called and it tells the story of commodore 64 and uh, it's a bit of a hard read you know it's really a really thick book but but uh, if you're a commodore fan you totally have to read it and uh, it explains how what commodore did was not to make a very appealing computer they definitely did that what they did was to take the a, a Motorola microcontroller that was $300 and made their own version for $30. So by pushing down the microcontroller one order of magnitude, they could make cheap computers for people. And actually, the Apple computer is based on the prototyping kit from uh, Commodore. The original Apple computers uh, were made with Commodore technology. So you see there, you know, it's something as important as, you know, getting something in technology and putting one order of magnitude down allows for many people to start using it. And the only reason why we could do this in Arduino is actually because ABR uh, offered people a microchip, the Atimega family, that you could program with a completely open source tool chain. So you could compile this tool chain for any operating system. So anybody in the world with any computer, no matter how old, could program my controllers for free. And that really made a difference. And um, the only thing we did was to communicate this to everybody by making an open source piece of hardware that was honoring that piece of software that these guys had made before. So I, I think, um, yeah, it's a history repeating in a way. It does. When more people get technology in their hands, awesome things happen. I know you're really passionate about that, about empowering, especially underprivileged individuals and people that aren't in great situations to get technology in their hands and improve education. Where do you see us headed in that direction? Well, I'm, I'm a strong defender of, um, of uh, you know, empowering teachers. Uh, I think many people that are looking at technology in education, they, they are focusing on the kids which of course you have to, the kids are the ultimate receivers of the educational action. But I, I think the teachers are the vehicle that makes that possible. They are the ones that interact with the kids on a day-to-day -day basis. They are the ones that run the schools, you know. And um, and I think when, when trying to create educational technologies and trying to, to help the educational system to improve, we need to really listen to the teachers and try to have a dialogue with them, an open dialogue, trying to improve things. Because at the end of the day, the politicians can say, can force the teachers to learn stuff, you know, in order to bring that, that new thing into the class. But if that new thing is not designed to be appealing for the teachers, 
it's going to be really, really hard for that to be accepted in the long run. So, um, so my, my policy has always been uh, to interact with teachers directly, you know, firsthand. So I do a lot of field work. I'm constantly teaching workshops, uh, lessons, uh, interacting with the school authorities in different countries, visiting the ministries of education, and trying to to learn about what are the rea- what is the reality. And when we design educational products and programs in Arduino, we make it adjusted to their needs. So we don't we don't believe in one size fits all. Hopefully, in the future, it will be like that, making our job much easier, <laughs> and also whole world of education more democratic. But as things are right now, uh, one size doesn't fit all, and we need to figure out how to make it happen. Yeah, the school system is pretty it's pretty wanky. Uh, you've got basically a factory to put out factory workers. How do we change that going forward? Because we're entering an era where we don't need any factory workers. We need creative people. We need people that can think outside the box. Well, yeah, there, there's different views on that. I'm a follower of school of thought of constructionism, which basically defends the idea that we can use technology in a creative way and therefore we can teach people through creative actions and uh, also in project-based learning where we engage people in educational processes that imply interacting with as real as possible cases where they need to uh, figure out what is needed to solve a problem. Uh, For example, you will start a class and you will tell the students, okay, you're going to build a project to solve this or that problem. And then the kids have to make research and figure out which are the tools they need and whether they need to build a prototype or they need to learn electronics to build a prototype or things like that, right? So I, I'm a strong believer that that kind of system works. And um, and uh, so we try to support it. But at the same time, we I also know that this is just a, a, solu- a temporary solution because, you know, ideally in the future, we will have all the tools that are needed to be able of teaching people, you know, with technology in a, in a much better way. And I think, as I said, that, that the, the complex thing really is the pedagogical aspects behind things. So how you fi- how you design interesting educational interactions with technology so that people can engage in creative processes. Uh, and there is a lot of tools that are, you know, working in that way recently. Like the last five to ten years, I think there has been a big change. The problem is dissemination. How you get these things to reach everybody, how you get things translated to multiple languages, how you can engage governments, uh, teachers, parents and so on to change the system. Exactly. It takes it takes a lot of people to change the system. I think a big problem too is a lot of kids aren't building anything. They're not getting outside as much as they used to. They're they're on the phones. Any <laughs> any thoughts? Any I mean Arduino is kind of an interesting mixture because you can get kids doing things with electronics and they can enjoy doing it, but it's also playing and learning. Mm-hmm. Well I, I like to say that from that perspective, I like to say that we offer a connection to the world. You know, you know in a way the the telephone is opening up to this virtual world, this digital universe, while Arduino systems, they are uh, connected to the physical world, they connect to motors and sensors and so on. So they offer that bridge between the virtual and the physical. And, and we try to to bring this up all the time and adjust our content because also the educational system is changing real fast. When we started 13 years ago, some schools, they only have a couple of stationary computers for the whole school. And nowadays, many schools have fairly old laptops, but every single kid has a mobile phone. You know, after 11, 12 years old, all the kids have smartphones. So we're moving into this area of the bring your own device. So we can, we need to rethink how uh, the educational tools are produced because that, that smartphone can be the new notebook. That smartphone can be your own small pocket oscilloscope. You know, it can be so many things. 
And, and we need to rethink the way we understand tools. At the same time, we have to be very careful because you might also find situations where kids don't have the phones. So how do you create content that can be adjusted to those situations as well? And what should the school provider know? So as I said earlier, I think, um, unfortunately, one size doesn't fit all. So I think if we're talking education, we should actually distinguish between, I wouldn't say countries, we have to distinguish in, within, within a single country between different social classes and the ability to acquire technology and use it. Which makes it really hard because then we put all the rich kids together and all the poor kids together and then we have another different ethical issue. Yeah, exactly. Today, actually, I'm reading a text about the about the development of the pedagogical models in Sweden. And uh, is a prevalent, there is a prevalent conversation about equality. And there is a big critical, there's a professor that is very critical to the term equality. And I'm trying to start, starting to understand what she means. Well, she's talking about that by trying to make everything equal. We're also not engaging in the conversation that there might be some students that might need to be stimulated differently because they might be, for example, more intelligent, right? As, at the same time, there are students that have special needs and they need to engage in a different kind of conversation. And by trying to be, bring everybody into the same classroom, they might not be able of interacting at the speed they need for their own personal development. So it's a, it's a very interesting thing because because then you realize that that um, what might sound more logical from a, let's say, equalitarian and, and uh, almost sociological perspective is not from a development perspective. And then on top of that, we have technology. So as you see, the, the whole model is very complex and uh, a bit convoluted. But I, I think we just need to figure out what, what makes most most sense. And I think we need to listen to research because there's a lot of good research in the field that will you know drive this educational innovation in the right direction. It's super interesting. The problem with trying to make people equal is you always have to have the lowest common denominator. That's what happens with communism is we can make all of these cars, but if we have an extra car that's nice, we might as well burn it because otherwise people People aren't equal. It's the same thing with education. Mm -hmm. If you want to have all the students equal, you have to bring the bottom up to the average versus having yeah, more I mean, for the top. Let's say people need to have equal rights, but they also have the right to be treated according to their needs. So that, I think that's the right way of putting it. Otherwise, I think we enter into almost a liberal versus libertarian conversation, which I think should not apply to education because education should not be political in that sense. But yeah, you know, I, I could talk about this for hours. I don't know if you want to enter into this. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really interesting topic. I want to I wanna jump in. Um, what's the coolest or most interesting stuff you've seen people building with Arduino or Arduino-like DIY projects? Okay. So, um, so yeah, I would distinguish two different categories. So on the one hand, there is a do-it-yourself category, which is people in the community, you know, they're experimenting or they're building something for a class and, you know, they're very inspired and they do a crazy thing, you know, and then uh, there's a guy that made this machine that paints rainbows, for example, and it's a, it's a bunch of graffiti cans with a long stick and it's a motor. So he stops his bicycle on the sidewalk by a wall, presses the button and the whole stick goes like and sprays a beautiful rainbow, uh, perfectly symmetrical, right? And just an Arduino board and a, and a motor to move the stick. On the other hand, uh, there is a lot of uh, really cool scientific um, devices that are being built by the, but actually academics trying to to lower the cost of some scientific equipment. Like the other day, I was visiting a PhD student in Spain who is making a, a bioprinter. So he hacks 3D printers to add uh, four simultaneous printing heads that can print, that can print with, with cells, with the biomaterial. Uh, so he can make amazing uh, synthetic skin experiments, you know, at super speed. And he, he cut down the price from $100,000 to $3,000. 
You know, so that's that's the level of what open source and Arduino can provide right now. I'm the community, obviously. Uh, on the other hand, if you look at corporations, I've seen very interesting things. Like there is a, a this American company called NanoSatisfied that I always talk about, actually, <laughs> because they made this project called, called ArduSat. And it's a satellite that's orbiting the Earth and has the equivalent to eight Arduino Unos on board. So they have this educational kit so that you can, in your class, try some experiments of science experiments. And then you have a time slot on the satellite, so you can replicate the experiment on the satellite. And then you can, you know, see the results and compare how is to make this experiment with gravity and without gravity and so on. So, so there is really amazing, amazing things. Well, it's ridiculous when you combine the Arduino type technology with just the advancements we've had in smartphones. All of this tech now costs essentially nothing and it's a supercomputer. So people are putting up satellites for a hundredth of the cost. You see a whole new space renaissance happening. What areas are you most excited about? Oof. <laughs> Everything. You know, I, I, um, okay. So obviously I'm very interested in education because that's the field I, I'm most engaged with. I'm actually a city of education for Arduino right now. And uh, so I, I focus on strategies and, you know, trying to figure out if you're in a certain country, which would be the best possible solution to to realize certain types of projects or how to educate hundreds of thousands of students and so on. So that, to me, that that's uh, super engaging and it's very interesting. At the same time, as you said, there's a space renaissance. And I think it's because next year is the 50th anniversary of the moon landing. So everybody are so much looking forward to it. And we in Arduino Education are going to celebrate it. So next year, we're going to try to make one uh, space-related event each month. And this could be from, you know, let's collaboratively launch can satellites to there is this new product that is for you to explore space on your own you know so we want to try to have 12 different things i'm working on that very actively so i'm, I'm the main curator of that initiative uh, and then on the other hand i'm very engaged on the spanish-speaking community you you have noticed my accent so i'm actually from spain and uh, i'm very interested in trying to promote that people develop technology in spanish because most of the technology is developed in english and uh, i i mean i I'm perfectly fine with that. But what really bothers me is that because of language, there's a lot of people that don't get first-hand access to technology. And I think it's good to promote that things get translated in both directions much, much faster so that we can see how researchers and developers in other cultures can also shine uh, for their skills. Yeah, it's hard to make something open source for everyone when you have most of the languages that aren't being written or used for the, the tech. Sp Spanish is like third largest language, second largest at this point? Yeah, it's a third largest, but third it's largest. the one spoken in the most, in the largest amount of countries. So it's the, it's the most important official language in the world. That's one way of looking at it. I, <laughs> I, uh, it's definitely one of the most either way. What, uh, what do you find on the cutting edge of robotics, mechatronics, etc.? that's just most fascinating Oof, again <laughs> you will have realized i like to say oof a lot um uh, yeah well in, in robotics i think one thing that i find very interesting right now is the whole discussion about ethics apis so it's not so much about that things can move things can move that's no problem but but now we're talking about the intelligence we embed in the into technology and how we have to build something that can bring common sense to the actual device you know we humans we have the law as a way to regulate what we do on a day-to-day -day basis and then we have ethics as a way to anticipate when things are not regulated so we apply common sense until a law comes in and says okay from now on you are not allowed to do this right so we need to bring this into into uh, robotics and there's big conversations about it i mean the classic discussion is the the automatic driving car that has to decide whether 
kills the dog or kills the kid, you know. But then again, if you think about the same conversation in a different culture, maybe the, the kid has less priority, for example. You know, let's not take a dog, let's take a cow, and we automatically, you know, will be understanding the, the, the discourse here. But then the, the question to me is, how can you implement these ethics APIs that can be look, uh, localized in terms, in terms of culture, can understand different aspects that are needed? Because the problem again is that technology has been developed uh, discriminating cultures most of the times. But then if we need to implement artificial intelligence, we need to be able to implement in this different way of thinking about the decisions to be made. And that, that I think that's very interesting. I, I think there is work being done in that in that field that I think is more much more cutting edge than talking about, you know, building better motors for a mechatronic device. Do you think we should change the ethics of devices based off of where they're located? So for instance, if you make a robot in China, it's perfectly fine with spying on you. If you make a self-driving car in Saudi Arabia and has to run over a man or a woman, it's going to run over the woman. That We have some of these ethical problems where we can see that certain cultures have it wrong. It's hard to respect their views. Would you uh-huh. build that into tech? Well, that, that's a really big question. That's why, that's why I'm saying that's where common sense kicks in. So probably you should not... I mean, if you have an ethical uh, issue with uh, developing something, you should probably not be engaged in that development. No, that's, I don't mean necessarily not to develop it, but I mean, like, let's say we develop autonomous yeah, vehicles. But, 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 yeah, but, but here's the thing. You know, there is countries that, that develop weapons and sell them to other countries. So as a developer, my question is always, would you as a person be engaged in the development of those weapons? You know, personally, I will not. But if somebody else was which I will respect because it's a personal decision at the end of the day, then uh, that person should also ask himself whether it's allowed to follow somebody else's ethical rules, you know, and, and, um, and then again, so if you need to implement uh, something like it's localized, like we were just discussing, then, you know, if a company is to sell that service to somebody else, they probably need to have the right developers that can understand that sensibility and so on. But then again, as you see, I'm trying to separate the, the idea of developing from the idea of what I personally as David think, because I, I think these are two different things. Well, I would personally not do certain things, but I can totally entertain the idea of something happening just for the sake of, you know, eventually coming to the conclusion, I should not do this. <laughs> You know? So when the question comes, I can know in advance, I should not get engaged into this. Um, so many technologists don't do that, though. They don't think about the, the consequences. They just run with it. How do, how do we change that? I think, I think a lot of people don't think about it because I think it's super exciting to, to say, oh, I, I'm going to make a compression that's going to be 10% more efficient. You know, and that's a, an amazing technical challenge. But then you don't really think which is the guy paying you or who, who you are making it for or what it's going to be used for, right? And, and that's, again, something you need to consider, I think. And, and um, well, we could enter into end, the endless conversation of whistleblowers, right? It's like the new, the new technological activism, uh, where it's really hard to stop it. Um, sometimes the only way of stopping it is to speak aloud and bring it up, you know. And, and we, well, we've seen some whistleblowers that ended up burning their hands. You know, you have Assange and, and you have Snowden and so on. Uh, I can't remember now the, the name of the guy that, that was the whistleblower for uh, Cambridge Analytica, right? Who ended up perfectly fine, you know, because... Well, uh, I shouldn't say this because I don't have the full story, but Cambridge Analytica ended up being proven wrong. So so uh, maybe when you work for the private sector instead of the public sector, like Snow and doing, for example, it's a bit easier to become the whistleblower. Uh, in the, that's because in the public sector, they just make it illegal and treason. It's not actually, it's not actually <laughs> different. They just get to write the rules. Yeah, yeah. And in the private, in the private sector, you have NDAs. No? <laughs> so it's like, uh, mm-hmm. so they can, they can sue you for transgressing the NDA and then you have to try in court to appeal to common sense and say, hey, guys, but this guys were breaking the law, you know, and uh, 
And so the other day, just going very, very, uh, you know, uh, reflective of this. The other day, under Spanish government, in Spanish parliament, the the head of cybersecurity was was uh, make, was making a deposition, and he said that the largest threat to to cybersecurity nowadays is not nation states, is large corporations. I mean, it's something that we know, but hearing this from the head of cybersecurity of a country, I think says a lot, right? Um, so, so I, I think um, there is a new. I think we as technologists, we need to think again about what is our role and how much we want to engage, uh, and whether we think we, we think we're doing the right thing, and whether money is is the, the thing we want or we want the greater good and try to make something else. And I think open source again is a really good solution for solving this problem because if a corporation or a country is open sourcing all of its technologies as they're being produced, then you get a large amount of people that can peer-to-peer review that technology and, and highlight potential threats and issues. And then there can be a conversation about it, at least, you know. And then again, that's also why it's very important to educate people in how technologies work so that you can have enough reviewers to try to understand how things work. Because that's, again, the problem. If you have a country where nobody develops in Python, for example, and you have a spin te- spine technology made in Python being published on GitHub and nobody can review it, then nobody will know that things are going wrong. So so as you see, this is the evil circle and we try to ha- we have to try to break it in a way or another. And personally, I've chosen the role of education and trying to you know educate people so they can get more aware of things, uh, so they can learn more about technology and digital technology, and they can be participate participating in these situations where they need to have a say about how technology works and it should be developed further. What technologies are you most worried about? Microwave ovens, uh, <laughs> bicycles. So, so European. <laughs> imagine imagine bicycles exploding and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I would say, you know, the, in the light of the recent events in, in hardware, you know, like this whole Chinese threat uh, of the microchip being embedded in... Do you think it's bullshit or do you think there's something there? I have no idea. I think it's technically possible. That's what I think. I think it's technically possible because right now, every single digital device has a bootloader and you could force that bootloader to load by an I2C interaction. And that very tiny cheat that they were showing in the pictures would actually interact through an I2C signal. So we actually had an internal conversation in, inside the Arduino development team and, and everybody agreed, yeah, this is perfectly possible. Whether it's true or not, we should have this chip in our hands and test it. But the idea that it's possible is there. But you don't need to go to China to see this. Look at, at Intel having the their operating system running, you know, in the underlying, in the, the background of the chips. So they could trigger events and send analytics and do whatever they wanted. And this is a really large corporation, you know. So so uh, this, is one, this is one of the examples where open source will have very quickly shown that something was going on. How do you think about IBM buying Red Hat? Red Hat? <laughs> That's interesting. That's a very interesting. That took me completely by surprise the other, the other week. I don't know. I have mixed feelings. I have mixed feelings because IBM removed itself from from the hardware business many years ago already. Uh, personally, I run Lenovo laptops because I like the hardware a lot. You know, I used to have IBM laptops before, um, and I was really shocked when they decided to do that, and that made me think a lot. And I think that if they bought Red Hat, it's because they understand about the importance of how Linux works and what that brings them. Um, so, yeah. Is it just a dinosaur trying to get into the cloud game because they're uh, so far behind? Do, do you think Bluemix is behind? I'm not really sure. 
I, I think I mean, IB, I think IBM's definitely behind. Yeah, I mean that's a conversation to be held more with software people. Um, um I know that in Arduino we don't have any IBM infrastructure, right? I know that we do have Google and AWS infrastructure running. Mm-hmm. And I know many companies, uh many mid-sized companies that do again have that that duet technology, you know, plus a third on their own in case one fails, they can always Fail safe, like falling to the next one or falling to the next one. And typically, IBM is not into that into that list of technologies they implement. So yeah, so it could be could be a way for them to go in. At the same time, I think could be a way for them to go into the into the um, more mainstream uh, development of Linux, which is so fundamental. You know, I have no idea about how many developers they do actually have. I think Microsoft and Intel are more a, lot, a bit more open about how many people they employ uh, supporting Linux and um, you know, I think this could be a way for them to to put a foot into this business. So you're a big fan of open source and self organization. How do you think about Catalonia, uh, Catalonia and other <laughs> and other smaller areas, California to a lesser extent as well, that kind of want to separate but are stuck in this nation state system? Okay. I will avoid, as a Spaniard, and respectful of people's opinions, I will avoid to have a political, very political discussion in that regard because uh, things have been very ugly among people in Spain uh, because of this debate. Uh, you because know, friendship. Yeah, but I mean, at, at a personal level, friendship went broken. You know, people were fighting around the Christmas dinner table and things like this. And and I think that is not good because if anything like this was about to happen, it should happen from the perspective of, of respect. And uh, at this point, I think people need to really heal uh, and have an honest conversation about things. Uh, Catalonia is at 50-50, really. It's literally 50-50. So, so I don't think uh, any voting can fix that. So, uh, and I'm, I'm not for either position, or to be honest. Again, when it comes to, to self-organization, I think I'm, I'm more for like a global government, like worldwide global government to fight against asteroids and dinosaurs, you know. I mean, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I, I, I don't believe in nation states. Per se, I I think they are a necessity right now, but they they don't represent their citizens most times. And and if you look into academia, you will realize that academics are looking a lot at the importance of cities as real sources of uh, economy and uh, development in the world. I know, and and since regions and cities have a say in the educational systems, for example, they also have a say in the research and development environments that they create. And they can exempt access to companies that they can develop their businesses there and so on and so forth. So from that perspective, I think cities are a lot more important. So if you talk about California, for example, do you talk do you talk about California or do you talk about San Mateo or you talk about Los Angeles? You know, that's that's the question for me. If you talk about Catalonia, you definitely talk about Barcelona. And Barcelona in general is actually against independence, for example. But the countryside is for independence. And and, and, there, and there's an interesting conversation since this is the same thing happening in the States. In the States right now, it's a rural versus city fight, you know. And in in, uh, in Sweden, it's a very similar thing. We just had elections and you can see there's a rural versus city fight. It's like uh, there is a lot more extreme right wing in, in the countryside than it is in the cities. So, so I think, I think we need to rethink whether our governance models are really working. We need to think about whether governance models, uh, do represent people, uh, and support them properly because they clearly don't feel represented, you know, and that this, this explains a lot of the weird political successes in the last couple of years. Political failures is more like it. Yeah, city's a real thing. A government, uh, a country is not actually a real thing. It's just a made up. But we can all see what a city is. I, I agree. It's interesting looking forward. How do you think about 
Sweden has a pretty solid system. It's not perfect, obviously. There's a lot more right-wing stuff happening lately. But how do you think about in terms of an ideal? Is Sweden is Sweden close to an ideal? I know a lot of people think of it as something similar. Mm. Well, I've been here for 18 years, and I I like Sweden a lot. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. But I don't think it's close to an ideal. You know, there is weaknesses, for example, in the educational system. Uh, there is a baby boom in the last 10 years. So there's a lot of issues with schooling. The medical system is definitely not optimal. You are treated different times by different doctors for the same disease uh, when you enter in a process. And so you don't feel treated in a certain, like properly because you get it. I mean, even though the process works fine, you know, from a user perspective, I don't think it's optimal. So there is weaknesses. At the same time, um, school is for free, universities for free. People have a safety net under themselves. So you can never starve, you can never freeze. You know, if you really are in trouble, you go to the social uh, service and they're going to help you out and they will help you go back on your feet, you know, eventually get new education, get new jobs, whatever, right? So that supports people and that's there. And that's very different from other places. But it's also true that if that thing wasn't there, in a country where the temperature reaches minus 20 in the winter time, <laughs> people will probably die. So you need to build that safety net. You know? And uh, and uh, I, I like that. And personally, I, I, I have full respect, for example, for, for people in the US where you have to take care by yourself for, of so many things, you know, like insurances and uh, social insurance and all of these kind of things, because here those things are covered. You know, the moment you move here, uh, you, you subscribe to the social medical service um, they take care of everything. Your kids, they call you once a year to bring them to the dentist. You don't even need to bother to call the dentist. <laughs> you know, they, every year you get a letter saying that 15th of March at 12 p.m., uh, your kid, or 12, whatever, midday, your kid gets a dentist appointment. Just show up. What's you, the you tax rate make, in Sweden? Well, you will be surprised. It's not that bad. They're just more uh, efficient. The U.S. government is just so poorly inefficient. Yeah, but you have to think about it this way. First of all, you have, everybody gets a flat rate social security tax which is 30%, more or less. And then on top of that, you have a tax depending on your income. And uh, the lowest, I think, is 22 23% when you have like a really low income. Uh, then average, most people we get like about 30%. And then when you get a much higher, you jump into the 40%, 50% uh, of the remaining. So at the end of the day, people like me, for example, will get 49% of the money that stays in our salary. Okay. Um, yeah, but, but again, I don't have to bother about the road. I don't have to bother about the hospital. I don't have to bother... <laughs> about public transportation, you know, or things like like public transportation is strongly subsidized, just to, to put an example. The only thing you've got to worry about is the winter being terribly dark. Uh, <laughs> well, we have really good lighting systems. Don't you see my face? I mean, it looks really... I know, it's it's pretty good. You're, you're beating out mine. David, I got, I got two last questions for you. Okay. The first one being, what's the most unexpectedly awesome thing that's happened to you in your life in the last several months? Okay. Yeah. Okay. A week and a half ago, actually two and a half weeks ago, I, I developed my PhD after 15 years. So that's definitely the most awesome thing. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. You know, a lot of things came on the way. I had a kid. We built Arduino together. I traveled the whole world. We built five companies. So it was kind of hard to finish, <laughs> but I still, I still did it because for me it was, uh, it was something I had to do for myself and for my parents because they, they pushed me into academia many years ago and I kind of owe them, you know, the honor of having a, a PhD in the family. So yeah. So that's the most awesome thing. And my parents were here to see that. That was really cool. That's quite cool. And the last and most important question, if you had one thing to leave people with, a quote, a call to action, it can be anything. What would it be and why? Mm. <laughs> well, since I've been talking about empowerment, 
I think uh, I would say like uh, uh, if you really want to get something done and you see that nobody else has done it, you know, learn whatever it takes to, in order to make it yourself because then you would probably be helping yourself and a lot of other people as well. And that's that's the wrap up, guys. There's nothing better. Learn it, do it, live it. David, this has been so much fun. Thanks for coming on. Where's the best place for people to learn more about you, what you do and say, hey? Well, if they want to learn about uh, me and in, in, let's say my Arduino life, they just should go to arduino.cc. In our website, there there is blogs and links to our live cast. You know, I make a weekly live cast for absolute beginners in technology just to inspire them every Tuesday at 7 p.m. CET. Uh, if they want to know about WT Academic, I can recommend you go to Malmo University Press and find the free PDF for my doctoral thesis, which is extremely boring and will help you sleep in uh, sleepless nights. Perfect. Like those some, like those summers that are full of way too much sunshine. <laughs> I, uh, and guys, if you're listening to this, don't go buy your kids some stupid toy. Don't go buy them video games. Buy them something that they actually learn and it can experience something awesome. Arduino, very cool. I love what you guys are doing. I love empowering education and making kids and people more awesome. So thanks for doing it. Yeah, thank you very much. Sweet. Cheers, guys. Talk to you again soon. If you want more of The Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm, where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact. 